Hey, everybody. Guess what? It's time for the With a Bullet podcast. I am Todd Golden. I am here with Matt Golden. Matt, what's going on? Uh, not too much. I was watching the convention, and they they changed their mind and nominated you really? for president. Well, so. I am Milwaukee, and <laughs> I'm running on the platform that um, rather than getting, you know, like disrupting the mail service to t- try to get rid of the vote, mm-hmm. I'm just going to get rid of mail in general. I mean, okay. Who, who, <laughs> I mean, how often most of the mail I get like good mail comes from like Amazon and stuff and bad mail comes from the U S post postal service. So if I don't get any bad mail, I won't have any bills to pay or anything like that. Well, I mean, you still have to pay your bills, I guess. (laughs) No, no, I don't. If I don't get them in paper, I don't pay them. I mean, you know, okay. That's the way I look at it. So win, win. That's why I'm going to win. I don't win. (laughs) Make America Todd again. Matta. Juan Mata. (laughs) I will happily accept uh, my running mate. Would you like to be my running mate? Sure, sure. Too bad. I'm picking somebody else. So (laughs) I need a woman on my ticket. I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick the prison warden from reform school girls. Okay. I have no idea where that came from. All right. Anyway, um, enough silliness. Uh, the chart is one that I picked this week, and it's from, it's the R&B chart from August 24th, 1974. And not to brag or anything like that, um, because I just, I kind of just wanted to do an R&B chart generally. And I prefer R&B from the early 70s. Um and I have to say, I think I enjoyed this one musically anyway, more so than uh, any chart that we've done. I just, I really, I don't, I'm not saying I liked every song because I didn't, but I like the whole vibe of this chart. What did you think of it? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was actually hard for me to come up with skips for some of these because it, I mean, most of the songs on here are pretty good. So I just like the fact that it's, you really are capturing uh, a transition period because by 1974 um you're you're basically sorting you know basically you're out of the psychedelic soul period you're kind of out of the bubblegum afro soul period of the early 70s there's still a little bit of evidence of that i think on this chart but you're also pre-disco although what's considered to be the first disco song is on this chart um, so you're starting to see that transition into disco and what you have left in the middle is a, a lot of funk. And there is a big difference between funk and disco for people who think they're the same thing. I mean, funk is uh, the, the, probably the most basic way I could put it is funk takes musicianship and disco does take musician musicianship, but it favors producers over the musicians, I think is the way I look at it. So you have a lot of that, but you also have a lot of gritty R and B um, there's some blues on this. There's some straight, mm-hmm. just smoking R&B songs on this. There's some R&B rock on this. Um, it really was an interesting period. And I don't know, even know that I realized that when I picked this out. And I had a lot of songs that I knew, but I had some that I didn't. And I was pleasantly surprised by some of the ones that I didn't know. So, um, mm-hmm. so I enjoyed it. I, I really like R&B from that period. So that helps. But um really had a good time listening to this and this was one of the 
few times where I've actually gone and, you know, kind of listened to more stuff, you know, based on some of the artists I heard. So, uh-huh. so anyway, I guess we should get started. Right. Number 40 for you. This one I was very familiar with going into is uh, Standing on the Verge of Getting It On by Funkadelic. Hey, lady, won't you be my dog and I'll be your treat and you can pee on me. Um, <laughs> I'm not into that. <laughs> okay. Well, well, that's that's the intro to the song. It's um, sped up in the song, but just got the intros that kind of repeated three or four times before they actually get into it. Um, yeah, for those who don't know, Funkadelic like to goof off at the beginning of their songs with scatological type stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And definitely on like the first songs of their albums, too. I mean, that's kind of a feature of all their albums. But um, but this was um, Eddie Hazel's return to Funkadelic. Um, he actually wrote this song with George Clinton. And um, this is a little bit different than early Funkadelic. Um, not as, like, hard rock or, like, almost dark as early Funkadelic. It's kind of moving more into pop territory. And it's it's really good party funk. I mean, I'm sure most people are familiar with some of the stuff from Funkadelic, but um, it was actually a short return for Eddie Hazel because um, he had some incident on an airplane with PCP after this. Um, so he, he kind of ended up in jail for that. <laughs> and um, he did make appearances on other Funkadelic albums and but never really like returned as a full member, but he's back here and the guitar on this is great. And this is a great <laughs> song. So yeah. Yeah. Many, many people consider Eddie Hazel's solo on maggot brain, which came out three years before this to be the greatest guitar solo of all time. And I'm, I don't know. It's that up it there. Is, yeah. But I'm not going to argue it. I mean, I bought that album strictly on that guitar solo alone. And that's really what got me into Funkadelic you know, gosh, over 20 years ago now, well over 20 years ago now, 25 years ago in the first place. Um, and this album's awesome. This is one of the first Funkadelic albums I got. I think I got this one right after Maggot Brain and the first side of this album and then Standing on the Verge of Getting It On is, on, is the first song on the second side is as good as they got, to be perfectly honest. I mean, mm-hmm. Red Hot Mama leads off side one, which also has a scatological start to it. But that it, it has the same line, doesn't it? Or it might. I, I forget. One of them was slow down, and one of them was fast, or something. I don't remember. But that's yeah. one of the funk songs they ever did. And Sexy Ways is the fourth song on that. I mean, that's that's a really good album. Funkadelic was the rock part of the P Funk universe, and then Parliament, who shows up later on this, I think. Um, they do yeah is the dance oriented part of the george clinton empire that he had going in the 70s so this is really though where they parliament was kind of in the background up until this point and funkadelic was more prominent in the early 70s this is also the transition to where parliament if you want to separate the two becomes probably a little bit more uh more definitely more prominent than funkadelic although funkadelic was you know they put out um um the um they they had um oh shit what was the name of the album they put out in 78 um oh crap um i forget which one it was called 
Is it the one oh, with flashlight oh. on it, or no? That's Parliament. Um, okay. Oh, 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 it takes a uh, um, one nation under a group. Duh, jeez. Oh yeah, that's yeah. funkadelic. That album is that's one of those uh, Spotify, you know, wish it was on Spotify albums. But so mm-hmm. yeah, P Funk are uh, are the shit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But moving on to thirty nine for you, we have um, Bobby Bland with "Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City." Well, straight away we get a song that was famously sampled, and a lot of these songs, especially the funk songs were heavily sampled by artists, especially in the 90s. Um, Jay-Z, or Jays as I like to call them, um, <laughs> was so clever when he reversed the song title to Heart of the City Ain't No Love. I, see, stuff like that just bugs me. That's just so creatively. <laughs> but, um, and current presidential candidate Kanye West produced it in the early 2000s. But um, right. It was that song, though, their version of it has become kind of almost a trope. It was in American Gangster and it was heard on the guitar line from this song, which is basically the sample for Jay-Z's song, was very prominent in several early, late 2000s, early 2010s commercials. I think it was in a Chevy commercial Mm -hmm. Um, and it was used on one of the NBA 2K soundtracks and. So it's a shame that that version became famous because it all it does is rip off the guitar and the groove from Bobby Blue Bland's version, which is a really, really cool slow blues song. And this is the one album, this came off of Bobby Bland. I, I didn't know a whole lot about Bobby Bland. I know he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I knew he was a blues legend, but I honestly didn't know a whole lot about him. And I listened to this song. I was like, oh yeah, okay. And I really am specific about what kind of blues I like. And I do like that R&B slow blues that mm-hmm. the song embodies. So I went and listened to the album this came from, which is called Dreamer. And it was kind of a comeback album of sorts for Bobby Blue Band, Bland. And that is an excellent album that if you're into kind of slow, like late night bar blues, um, you can't go wrong with that album. That's just perfect for that type of stuff. So nice discovery to be able to listen to that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, moving on yep. to you, number 38 is Don't Change Horses in the Middle of a Stream by Tower of Power. Um, the proverb, Don't Change Horses in the Middle of a Stream, actually traces back to Abraham Lincoln. Um, it was one of the slogans for his reelection campaign in um, 1864, and the stream in that case was the Civil War. Um but in the context of this song, the singer of Tower Power is going through um, a rough, rough patch with his girlfriend, and he's kind of warning her not to do anything rash. But um, the song also implies that he might actually be a horse, too, <laughs> because um, immediately after he says that, he uh, uh, goes into the hook, which is, giddy up, giddy up, hi silver. And then, like, towards the end, he's, like, just saying, ride me, baby, which might be, I mean, obviously sex, but I like to think that I like to think that he's actually a horse, so. Could be a tribute to Lee Dorsey, too, for um, uh, Ride My Pony. Eh, could be, could be. But, um, but, yeah, these guys, I mean, this is probably one of their better known songs. Um, God, what was, 
drawing a blank on the name of their big hit right now. Tower um, of Power? Yeah, so hard for me to go or something like yeah. that. Yeah, you're in the right ballpark. Right, yeah. But, I mean, this is, that was more of a ballad, but this is kind of more up-tempo, but it has kind of, like, their, um, like, horns, which are, like, the main aspect of their sound, and kind of, like, the the cool organ that it, that they have on most of their songs. So it has that going on, but the lyrics are kind of dopey for this yeah. one. We're definitely in the golden age of organs and clavinets and electric pianos, whether they're whirlies or... Uh, Fender Rhodes is so that's another reason why I like this stuff so much because that's one of my favorite both of those are uh, some of my favorite instruments by the way did you notice I stepped away for a minute because I forgot to bring my dog in from outside no no I didn't seamless seamless <laughs> perfect podcasting uh, uh, fake out there until I just gave it away <laughs> I ne- I never would have known I know. See, that's why I'm a professional. That's why I'm going to be president. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) um, Moving on to 37 for you, we have uh, King Floyd with I Feel Like Dynamite. This is some good gritty shit from King Floyd and also recently used in a commercial, actually still being used in a commercial for Corona. If you've ever heard it, there's this... uh, it kind of transitions in the middle of the commercial and it goes, well, and it goes, come on y'all, blah, blah, blah. That's, that's this song. That's <laughs> the of it. Um, this is new Orleans soul, which is some of the best soul you can find. And I just mentioned Lee Dorsey a couple seconds ago. He's kind of the godfather of new Orleans R and B anyway. I mean, there's a lot of godfathers behind him in the jazz scene, but um, Alan Toussaint and, the meters and others. This is, this is more spare than some of that stuff is, but um, it's pretty cool from King Floyd who's probably best known for uh, groove me. Um, but this song's pretty cool too. And you'd, you'd know it if you heard it. Um, I don't think it, I don't think it made the top 40, but um, especially if you know that Corona commercial, which is on like every 10 seconds, but so good stuff from mm-hmm. King Floyd. Yeah. Yep. So moving on, number 36 for you. This is a cover, I believe. Funky Music, Show Enough Turns Me On by Yvonne Fair. Yeah, and it is it is a cover. It's an Edwin Starr cover. And it's produced by Norman Whitfield here. And um, Marvin Gaye um, does the background vocals here, but he, was, he wasn't credited, but it's, I mean, really obviously him. And he's the first voice you hear. And I actually have like a Marvin duet later on in the chart. So when this popped on, I like immediately assumed that it was like the Marvin Gaye song, but obviously like his duet partner from that song didn't pop on. It was um, Yvonne Fair instead. And um, she was a member of James Brown's band and a member of the Chantels. And she recorded a song that was the basis for um, I Feel Good, which was called I Found You. And her voice and her delivery owe a lot to Brown. I mean, just kind of um, kind of in Brown's style. And she has kind of a raspy voice. So it's almost like a female James Brown. But um, this was also off of her only album that she ever put out. She just put out singles before this. But um, she was on Motown at the time. And the, the name of the album was The Bitch is Black. <laughs> and... 
and she's on the album cover she's wearing like a black dress and she's crouched on a bed and she has like a bullwhip in her hand so <laughs> not really what you'd expect from a Motown album cool cover if because somehow, they usually be cool if somehow played it safe Penn and Pixel did the album cover for that yeah yep <laughs> it's um but yeah it's I mean it's a it's a really good song I mean it's it is funky music, so um, yeah. it lives up to its title. It's one of the so. stable of Norman Whitfield songs that he liked to, when he did his songs, um, he's best known for producing the Temptations in their funky period and, and a few other groups like the Undisputed Truth and, and all of that. And, and Edwin Starr, when he was, uh, you know, a, a chart hit guy for Motown, he liked to spread his songs around. Like he used to do like, three different versions of them with different artists like a lot of people don't know that war edwin Starr's best best known song was actually recorded by the temptations first and right star and vice versa edwin Starr recorded some songs first that became hits for others and smiling uh, faces too yeah smiling faces sometimes was i believe by the temptations before the undisputed truth as well and um right this song by Edwin Starr is one of his better ones. Edwin Starr is underrated. I mean, everybody knows him for War, which, you know, they should. That's a great song. And and some people know him for um, for uh, what, 39 miles. But 20, uh, 25 miles. 25 miles, you know, give or take 14 miles, <laughs> um, which are both great songs. But he has some other great songs, too. And Funky Music, Show Enough, Turns Me On is just a belter, though his version of it is. So... Um, yeah, this this is kind of the same. This is actually pretty faithful to the original. Yeah. So. so, but Norman Whitfield would I think he I think he produced Rose Royce later and then he kind of faded out. But I'm a I'm a I'm a big Norman Whitfield guy. Yeah, yeah, a lot of good stuff from him. But um number 35 for you, we have Willie Henderson with Dance Master Part 1. Well, this is a skip, although I will say it's funky as hell. And I will also say that one of the fun things about doing this chart is some of this music was kind of hard to find. And yeah, I really only yep. heard like a very scratchy copy of this that somebody basically put like a recording of a 45 on YouTube for. So, but I'm skipping it. it it's fine. It's funky, but it's, you know, nothing to write home about. Moving on for you. Um, number 34 is On and On by Gladys Knight and the Pips. Um, really funky for Gladys. Um, she's getting funky here. Um, lots of wah-wah, lots of, um, clavinet on it. And it was, um, written and produced by Curtis Mayfield. And the song came from, um, the soundtrack of a comedy called Claudine, which starred Diane Carroll and James Earl Jones. And it was about welfare, which doesn't seem like a, a topic for um, comedy, but apparently in the mid seventies, they went for it. But um, I looked at the trailer and this, this is also in the trailer too, obviously, but um, basically the whole gist of it is that um, Diane Carroll and James Earl Jones have to hide their relationship from a social worker because um, if she finds out that the two of them are together, they'll lose their benefits or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I've seen parts of Claudine. I've, I've never seen it all the way through, though. Yeah, but um, but it's, I mean, this is a, I mean, 
decent song and th this is one of the ones that i mean i always have one that sticks in my head and this one the chorus of this has stuck in my head all week uh, which is basically just um the pips and gladys knight singing on and on back and forth to each other it's pretty catchy and um it ended up getting nominated for a golden globe for best original song but it lost to i feel love from benji so <laughs> Benji was hot in the seventies. Yes, it's hard to knock that dog off. But but this is a better song than than I feel love. So I thought um, you were gonna say Glad, Gladys Knight got ripped off. I there. thought you were gonna say by Donna Summer. I was like, what? Like, no, no, I no. I, I think I think Charlie Rich actually did the the version for Benji. <laughs> did he burn the Golden Golden Globe Award when he won it? <laughs> I don't. I don't think that he did. Probably not. That's a shame. <laughs> but um, 33 for you, we have Millie Jackson with How Do You Feel the Morning After? Well, Millie Jackson is famous for two things. Actually, I'm, I'm being a little flip, but let me, let me go with this. First and foremost, her biggest hit was It Hurts So Good, which was out a little bit before this, which was her biggest single, and it became a hit. It was actually recorded in 1971, but it became a hit after it was used in Cleopatra Jones, which I think came out in early 74 or late 73. And then she's infamous for her late 80s album cover from the 1989 album Back to the Shit yes, on a toilet, yes. looking like she is literally scrunching out a turd. So, um, <laughs> you know, she got a lot of notoriety for that. I remember that making press at the time, much less, you know, in the Internet age, you can find a million different stories about worst album cover and that's almost always featured but uh what she probably should be known for is just a really awesome gritty soul voice and um yeah. she's definitely down in the deep you know deep voiced female category very husky and um you know pretty non-compromising in most of her songs and that voice is featured in this song which is a good mid-tempo ballad um you know, she was also probably a little bit, you know, in a period where songs were getting a little bit more risque, she pushed the envelope on that, too. She was willing to be a little bit. I don't think she was explicit, but she would definitely sing about sex, you know, without holding back and that kind of thing. And she also liked to rhyme a lot in her songs. So she has the nickname among hip hop fans as the mother of hip hop for that reason. So uh, hmm. Millie Jackson is she is pretty cool I, I can't say I've listened to a ton of her stuff but I've listened to some of it and um, it hurts so good is a really good song that that deserved to be a hit and also in that gritty R&B vein that a lot of these other songs are in too I mean it's, it's kind of southern soul but you know also bluesy and but not quite disco-y either so so back hmm. to the shit she could be forgiven for that because uh, she had a lot more to offer than just a silly album cover right and she had other silly album covers too from what I yeah remember. she did but that's the most famous one i mean she kind of <laughs> became a novelty artist in a sense in the 80s but um but artistically her peak was this period in the early 70s so but right moving on for you number 32 is teller love has felt the need by eddie kendrick's and this, this is the first ballad on my, my side of the list. Um, it's kind of ethereal, piano-based, and has almost like a choppy um, bossa nova beat to it. And obviously, 
Kendricks. He has like the smooth falsetto going. So it's, it's, I mean, really good ballad. And I mean, surprisingly, it didn't really cross over onto the pop charts. I mean, Eddie was kind of like in his solo peak at this point. This is like shortly after um, Keep On Trucking. And I mean, just based on listening to this and knowing what was going on in the charts, I mean, I thought that it probably crossed over, but it peaked at number 50 over there. And um, I, it definitely should have done better. I mean, this is a much better song than like being at number 50 on the charts. Yeah. But, but I mean... Kendrick, I mean, Kendrick's, I mean, obviously dating back to his temptation stuff. I mean, pretty much all great. And um, Keep On Trucking is kind of like a novelty song, but that's decent, too. The only problem with, so. with Keep On Trucking is that it just drones on and on and on. I mean, it just never stops. And, you know, that was kind of the thing. I mean, that was he didn't play on the Temptations. Papa was a Rolling Stone, but that was kind of a thing at the time to stretch out songs. Um Curtis Mayfield is guilty of that in a song I have later, but um, that was that's keep on trucking would be much better if it was shorter, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Okay, good. <laughs> but um, 31 for you, we have uh, Bill Withers with you. Well, Withers who just passed away um, within the last couple months, uh, is in both the Songwriters and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he richly deserves to be in both. Um, I've always thought he was pretty unique. Uh, the cool thing about him is that, and this song embodies it, is that he writes really smart songs. Um, he writes really good story songs. I mean, his bigger hits, um, you know, in particular, um, Use Me, you know, tell great stories. And those are songs about, you know, you know, lovers and relationships and stuff like that. But he wrote other songs like he wrote some Vietnam related songs that were really good. And um, he, he was just a really good songwriter. But the way he grounded that was he was from West Virginia and there was like a little bit of it, it's not country, but very rootsy vibe to his songs. That was kind of unique. I thought that he carried on. And yet they also come off offhand, too. Like he comes off very modest in his songs, but also very genuine, I think. And uh, that's why I really, uh, really like Bill Withers a lot. And, um, you know, and he also had pretty sophisticated production values in his songs, too. I mean, while still basically remaining, you know, kind of offhanded in the way he did them. So I'm a big Bill Withers fan. This isn't his best song by any stretch. And he was shortly to kind of morph into a, like a lot of artists did from the early seventies into more of a balladeer by the last half of the decade. But uh, he's still basically in singer songwriter mode here. And, uh, you know, pretty interesting song. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of Bill Weathers from this era too. So. Yeah. He's just yeah. a good songwriter and I'm not usually into songwriters per se, you know, I'm not a, I don't mind the singer songwriter genre at all, but I don't like seek it out. And, um, but Bill Withers just tells interesting stories and they're not all heavy either. I mean, he's also funny in some of his songs too. So just, you know, it was a good era for that type of music. And he was probably the best, maybe he and Curtis Mayfield when Curtis was at his peak were the best at writing songs, I think. So um, Marvin Gaye was good too. 
but he also didn't write all of his songs. So um, Stevie Wonder, you know, that kind of thing. They were all good, but Bill Withers was right. interesting. So speaking of which, yeah, number 30 for you, a big favorite of mine. You Haven't Done Nothing by Stevie Wonder. This is Stevie's 11th appearance on our show. Is it? And on, honest, honestly, I thought he'd been on more shows than that. So... Does, but, is, he, is, is he in first place? I didn't count like all of them. I mean, I just noticed that Stevie was on here and I just decided to look back to see like how many charts he'd cool, been on. I'm, cool I'm assuming the, the Bee Gees. Had, I'll bet Cool and the Gang is up there. And Queen, because I've had like 90 shit Queen songs on my various charts. Yeah, and I mean, Paul McCartney's been on here a lot too. Yeah, so yeah. maybe, yeah. But this song is almost like a slower, looser version of Superstition. Um, it has like the same clavinet, like identical horns, but it, it's just kind of stretched out and a little bit looser. And it opens with like a primitive early drum machine and kind of like a almost like swirling like keyboards at the beginning. But um this was written as an attack on Richard Nixon and Watergate was kind of going on at the time, but this is more of an attack on him in general. Um, this is a quote from Stevie. Um, Everybody promises you everything, but in the end, nothing comes of it. I don't vote for anybody until after they've done something that I know about. I want to see them do something first. The only trouble is that you always hear the president or people say they're going to do all they can and they feed you with hopes for years and years. I'm sick and tired of listening to all their lies. And that was the statement that actually came out with when he released this kind of like as a press release. And it was released two days before Nixon resigned from office. So um, presumably Nixon heard this and, said, well, I lost Stevie, so uh, fire up the helicopter. Yep. <laughs> but, but, I mean, but really great song, and I didn't know this before, beforehand, but um, the Jackson 5 is on this song, too. Yep. Um, they're the ones who do the doo-doo-wop background vocals on it. But um, really great song, and um, number went number one on this chart and on the pop charts, and um, Roger Daltrey of all people did a cover of this a couple of years ago and um, it's every bit as bad as you'd expect uh, and Daltrey was pro-Brexit so I'm assuming his version was like directed at the EU or something so yeah. but Stevie Wonder has some great intros to his songs and this is my favorite one out of all of them that drum machine you're talking about and the kind of descending keys that he has at the beginning leading into that funk hard funk clavinet that you know kicks off after that that is so awesome i love that love it yeah yeah it is i, I mean it, yeah it's it's an awesome i, I bought the fully yeah. first finale album on this song alone back in the 90s um that was a purchase based i mean i knew boogie on reggae woman was on it too but but I wanted this back when you could only get music through CDs. I wanted this song. And so I went out and bought that album based solely on that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. 
great song. So anyway, this should lead us into your long distance dedication. Yes, yes. And um, at number 97, um, I'm going for a total obscurity this week. Okay. Um, Alpaca Phase 3 with I Like to Party. Okay. And they were from Atlanta, or at least I think so. Um, One of the only credits I could find from them was from an Atlanta Soul compilation. And I'm assuming they're a trio, but I couldn't really find any pictures of the band. Um, when you enter Alpaca, ah, Alpaca Phase 3 into Google Image Search, uh, but you pretty much just get pictures of the single for this and pictures of actual alpacas. Right. So, um, and it's also possible that there might have been two other Alpaca Phases be- that came before this. But... Anyway, this is kind of an early disco track, and it's a pretty dumb disco track at that. Um, I don't normally do this, but I'm actually going to perform this song for you. Oh, wow. What a treat. So so here we go. I like to party. You like to party. We like to party. Everybody like to party. Woo! Woo! And then it just kind of repeats over and over for like three minutes. But that's the entire song. And it was it was written by Sam Dees, who's best known for writing Larry Graham's um, One in a Million You. And honestly, this is a much better song than One in a Million You, even though it is ridiculously dumb. But um, but that's kind of what happened with, I mean, Occasionally dumb songs like this. I mean, this is a, really a novelty song, but it's like borderlining a novelty just because it is so dumb. Yeah. But some of those songs do get into the charts and this only peaked at number 80. So um, occasionally on the genre charts and since, I mean, the other genre charts we did only went to like 50 or so. So it happens probably more on this one, but occasionally just like total obscurities get in there and, um, this is one of them. So this is going out to Obscurities, um, Dumb Disco, Real Alpacas, and everybody who likes to party. Yeah, this is, like you said, this is the first <laughs> time we've had a full top 100 for a, for a genre chart. And that's because we're both paying members of the Billboard.com uh, service, which has expanded charts, right? <laughs> right, yeah. right, right, yeah, exactly. We are. That's how we got access <laughs> to this. So we are fully paying members at billboard.com. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shut up. Anyway. So <laughs> yeah, but you're going to find more obscurities on the genre charts, um, which I think is what's kind of fun about them. But um, so I have to admit, I've never heard that one. Yeah. I, I had to go onto YouTube to find it. And it was basically just um, a recording off of a 45. Yeah. Like you could actually see somebody like dropping the needle on it. Yeah. <laughs> Just imagine. Let me take the time to video that for YouTube. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I'm, you know, I love music, but I mean, I don't know that I have anything obscure enough to even consider doing it, but I would never like, hey, let's put on the, the webcam and, you know, put some music on YouTube. I'm glad people do it. Because actually, I find a lot of the music for these charts on YouTube sometimes, but um, I just think that's an odd decision. But right, yeah, 
Yeah, I yeah, I don't really get it myself. I I've never done it either. So. I need to put I, I rode my horse on YouTube. You should. You should. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, moving on to number twenty nine. Here we have um, the natural four with you. Bring out the best in me. This would be a skip. Okay. Moving on, number 28 for you is Funky Party by Clarence Reed. Uh, this is a skip, but Clarence Reed is Blowfly. He's like the X-rated R&B um, Weird Al. So <laughs> okay. that's what I have for this one. Nice. <laughs> but uh, number 27 for you is Bloodstone with That's Not How It Goes. Well, this is not Natural High, so I'm skipping this. Uh, okay. Natural High okay. Bloodstone's big hit, and it's a, that's a good song, but this is more average at best. Moving on, you mentioned this one already. Number twenty-six, "Don't Knock My Love" by Diana Ross and Marvin Gaye. Yeah, and this is a Wilson Pickett cover, and it's pretty faithful to Wilson Pickett's version. And it came from the pair's only duet album, and. I sort of covered this when I talked about um, Diana's tribute to Marvin in our 85 episode, uh, the song Missing You. Um, but there were a lot of tensions in the sessions for this, um, basically because Marvin like insisted on doing drugs and um, the studio and Diana wasn't really thrilled about it. So um, they ended up recording at separate studios eventually and just kind of had somebody piece it together. And, I'm not sure if that's what happened with this song, but it might have. But the song is definitely more in Marvin's territory than Diana's. Um, it's pretty funky, and um, Diana just seems like kind of out of her element here. I mean, she, I mean, she tries to get into it, but she's like sort of almost like yell singing at the end of it, which is um, weird for her. I mean, um, she never really belted it out and like any of her songs and i mean even like in her disco period she never really got that funky so but i mean it's decent i guess i mean the marvin stuff's good but it's um i mean two motown legends on the same song i mean it's decent just on that i guess a rare case where wilson pickett got covered instead of wilson pickett doing the covering which he did a bazillion cover songs that is that is true. That is true, and I I have one of his al like one of his early albums, and there is some like bizarre cover choices on that. Like I I'm pretty sure he covers the monkeys on it. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, and he he always <laughs> had some weird cover choices, but of the ones I've heard, almost all of them are really good. Though, I mean, even the one what did I have last week? Um, the uh, um, you keep me hanging on. He covered that, and his version was yeah. pretty good. You know, and he actually covered Vanilla Fudge's version, not the um, Supremes version. Yeah, I, I could see him doing a pretty good version. I, I still think his his cover of Hey Jude is my favorite cover of any song of all time. I think that's the best cover ever. Um, yeah, I mean that's. I mean, I I don't I wouldn't 
say I I mean I wouldn't know what what I'd pick for the best cover ever, but I mean that is a great cover. I know what you would so. pick for the best cover ever: Anarchy in the UK by Motley Crue. <laughs> yes, yes, Hopefully yes, I would. Me. <laughs> but anyway, moving on to twenty-five for you, we have um, the Commodores with a machine gun. Well, as most people would would remember, the Commodores are best known for morphing into basically a ballad-based band by the late seventies, uh, dominated by Lionel Richie, who then went on to go big-time solo in the early eighties. Um, but when they started out, they were a hard funk band, big time. And this came off their debut album, also called Machine Gun. And this is the debut song from that album. And this instrumental is one of the best funk instrumentals of all time. Maybe in my opinion, yep. second only to Billy Preston's Out of Space, which is just awesome. But, um, and people know this song. It's uh, very famous. It was probably best used in Boogie Nights, but it's shown up in other movies from the 70s. Uh, pretty short song, only maybe two and a half minutes long, but just a funk workout. And lest you think that Lionel Richie can't get funky, he is the one playing the squelched out synthesizer on this song. So oh, actually nice. sort of a Lionel Richie instrumental workout in some respect, although the rest of the Commodores certainly do their part too. And um the machine gun album which i listened to another album i listened to is just hard funk straight through really good album actually and so if you think the commodores were just easy and sail on and stuff like that um it's actually i think that's what's most disappointing about the commodores is they became a band (laughs) like that after they had been a pretty damn good funk band in the their first two or three albums or so so really, uh, Brick House was probably the last uh, of their funk hits. But um, but go check this one out on YouTube. There's an, actually a live version from Don Kirshner's rock concert where Lionel Richie is working out that keyboard, you know, riffing out with all those squelches and kind of playing with it a little bit, playing to the crowd. It's actually, you know, kind of kind of funny, really, because Lionel Richie, you know, by the 80s became became basically adult contemporary. But uh, right. But yeah, some hardcore funk off of a really good funk album. Yeah, and it was also um, it was sampled by the Beastie Boys on "Hey Ladies" too. Yeah, very yeah, a heavily sampled song. And um, like I said, I think its most famous use was in the kind of montage in "Boogie Nights," where Dirk Diggler is rising to fame towards the beginning of the or the beginning of his porn career in the movie. So um, there's this, I mean. Paul Anderson just basically used this song for them to kind of funk out for like 30 seconds of the movie, if I remember right. But so, yeah. So yeah, like a classic, a very well-known song and uh, deservedly so. Yep. Yep. Moving on. Number 24 for you is good things don't last forever by one of my favorite band names ever ecstasy, passion and pain. Um, This is a skip. It's not bad, but I just needed something to skip on here. So, are you skipping all three of them, or just one of them individually? Um, all three of them, and actually, it's not a trio either. I found out. I know. So. <laughs> I'll skip the pain, and I'll take the ecstasy and passion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll, I'll skip the pain too. Okay. So. <laughs> but um, 
Number 23 for you, Joe Simon with The Best Time of My Life. Well, kind of like you, this is sort of a skip. Not a bad song at all. I've never been able to get into Joe Simon. He's got a cool voice. Um, it's kind of weird that I'm, I'm not into him, but it's a skip. So moving on for you, one of my favorite artists, number 22, You're Welcome, Stop On By by Bobby Womack. Well, this is a skip too, and it's also kind of the same case as the last one. It's decent song. Bobby Womack's good, but needed something to skip. Son of a bitch. Don't be kissing on Bobby (laughs) Womack. I love Bobby Womack. Right. Yep. But um, number 21 for you, we have um, The Four Tops with Midnight Flower. Well, this is kind of a mid-tempo song from The Four Tops that reached number five on the R&B chart and um actually on the r&b chart it got it went higher than some of their so-called comeback songs did from the year before in 73 where they were big on the top 40 charts where they had uh, um ain't no woman like the one i got and um keeper of the castle and um are you man enough sweet misunderstanding love so this song isn't as good as that stuff especially i, I really like sweet understanding love that's a cool song but um, but it's still solid. I mean, it's hard to go wrong when you got Levi Stubbs singing, you know, you know, you're going to get some good stuff out of that. And, um, that's true, but it's pretty, you know, the four tops would only chart again in 81 when it seems like a lot of retro artists charted that year for some reason, but, um, but they would continue to chart on the R and B chart, but they were basically transitioning into the becoming an oldies band at this point yeah okay song, yeah, that's, but, you know that's but it's 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 not very well remembered and frankly you know i can understand why it's pretty average right yep that leads me to my long distance dedication that that is correct yeah. all right so number 91 this week was sexy ida part one by ike and tina turner and there's okay. actually two versions of this song um Part one, which is the one that we feature here today, um, it was intended for black audiences. Um, and then part two was intended for white audiences. And I can Tina Turner did that once in a while. They would do like a hard funk or hard gritty soul, you know, version for, you know, R&B radio. And then they'd do a rock version for white radio, basically. I, I don't know how often they did it, but this is one example of when they did and for part one which is the one that we have today it sounds like they stole stevie wonder from the superstition sessions and locked him in like a deep south juke joint or something like that for like a month and then <laughs> locked him in there with the iCats and uh because tina does sing on it but it's the iCats are heavily featured as well you know they got four female voices coming at you with some heavy duty funk and uh, so it's cool. But then part two is a rock song. And allegedly, although nobody has ever really can, you know, conclusively proven it. Mark Boland from T-Rex played guitar on part two of this song. And during <laughs> the phase where Mark Boland was trying to combine glam rock and R&B. And he also allegedly played guitar on Nutbush City Limits, which this would have been recorded sort of around the same time as that. So think of the guitar from Nutbush City Limits. And that's kind of the guitar in, in Sexy Ida Part 2, 
only much faster and much funkier. And it's an amazing song, especially like 28 seconds into the song is when Bolin would jump in with his guitar. And it's as good as anything he did on T-Rex. It's not hard rocking, but it's extremely funky. Just a very squelched out um, guitar tone that he gets out of his guitar and it just launches that song. And it's one of my favorites and it just uh, it takes that song to another dimension. But both parts one and part two are really, really good. And I, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Ike and Tina Turner from the early 70s. They had I don't know that their so- sound was so unique so much as it was just well done. I mean, they definitely were hard to define sometimes between rock and roll and soul and R&B. They they help define the whole genre of all of that. I mean, Ike Turner, it can be argued, made the actual first rock and roll song ever uh, with um, Rocket 88 in the early 50s. It was recorded under a different name, but he recorded it and played guitar on it. Yeah. yeah. So so Ike had the chops, no pun intended, um, and Tina Turner is, to me, probably the greatest female singer of all time because she you know she's up there yeah he did a lot of different genres and she could as far as a rock and roll female singer i don't think there is anybody better and she's not really often thought of necessarily as rock and roll but but they did straight up rock and roll songs and she could more than hold her own on those as well as sing slow songs as well as sing ballads and everything else she did a country album in the mid-70s when ike and tina were breaking up so um it's a shame that Ike was such a douchebag because, you know, the music and I, I think, unfortunately, the music from Ike and Tina's uh, period in the 70s is kind of dismissed because um, because he was such an asshole and he would probably make most of the money from it. And it's also hard to find, like, you know, it shows up in drips and drabs on streaming services. CDs were sort of released and sort of not because they put out like three of them a year back then. Uh, mm-hmm. they're a staple in record stores. If you go look for Ike and Tina Turner, you'll, you will find a lot of albums from this period, you know, cause they put out a ton of them. Um, but they made some of the grittiest funk and rock ever put on record. And the and major props to the Icats too, because they added a lot to their songs. And, um, like I said, it's, I, I don't know how long they would have lasted if they would have continued as a group. I mean, they probably unfortunately would have transitioned into disco, which they never did because, you know, Ike was such a dick and Tina left him in the mid seventies. Right. Abusive. But, um, but they did make great music. And this is a, just one example of some of the just outstanding stuff they turned out in the seventies. So, so this goes out to just the good music that they were able to make, despite uh, the problems that they were fighting through at the time. So. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I, I think, the Mark Bolin connection was that um, he was married to Gloria Jones, who I think was an Ike. Yes, she was. That's exactly right. And yeah, he allegedly so. played on um, Nutbush City Limits, this, and there was another, um, I, I think it was claimed that he played on Baby Get It On. I don't think he did because that was recorded a little bit later, but um, this would have been recorded around the same time as Nutbush City Limits. And it is, and the guitar does sound almost exactly like it only a lot faster and hmm. go check out sexy idea part two that is a great 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 song and sexy idea part 
blast sexy Ida part one is a great funk song too. So they could do it all. They could, they could, they, they, they were fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Number 20 for you is rock your baby by George McRae. This was one of the first big disco hits. Um, it's pretty minimalist. It's just uh, McRae, um, some light guitar, electric piano, and a drum machine. It almost sounds like a demo, and um, there's a good reason for that, because the backing track was a demo. Um, the song was written by um, Casey and Richard Finch from Casey and the Sunshine Band, and they were originally intending on keeping the track for themselves, but um, Casey couldn't hit the high notes in the song. Um, Casey doesn't really like have that much of a range as a vocalist, obviously, but um, George McRae was in the studio, so they just decided to give it to him, and obviously he does hit the high notes in here. Um, it's pretty great, and um, huge hit, ended up becoming a number one hit, and um, supposedly inspired well it definitely did inspire one song um, his wife Gwen's single Rocking Chair was kind of written as an answer to this um, Rock Your Baby Rocking Chair obviously probably, probably a better song than Rock Your Baby too honestly yeah yeah that's true but it also supposedly inspired Whatever Gets You Through the Night by John Lennon and um, Dancing Queen by ABBA. So um, hmm. one number one number one hit inspiring a couple other ones. So this unique in that. This song to me embodies the Miami wing of disco because it has this song more than any other. And some of Casey and the Sunshine Band songs have this too. But this song in particular, the way it was produced, has that dense, humid feel to it it's like humid funk oh I, yeah yeah definitely this, this song more than any other has that sound to it and i don't know how they got that sound on record it's weird because it, it almost sounds like it's it's a flaw but it works because... a lot of it is that drum machine because it, it almost sounds like a percolator a little bit yeah but i mean part of it too is that the 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 singing is sort of buried into the mix a little bit too. I think that's part of it. Um, and it sounds like it was recorded like on a four track or something like that. It just doesn't sound like a modern or, or like it's in mono or something like that. I mean, it, 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 I don't think it was intended to sound that way, but it does. And for whatever reason, KC who produced most of those Miami disco songs just was able to get that sound out of his records. And it is a cool, it's almost like, like, like you're sweating on the dance floor type of feel to it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Describe it. Yeah. I don't know that this is a great dance song. I know it is considered disco. I'm, I kind of dispute that a little bit, but, um, but their disco songs definitely had that vibe to it. So kind of cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it was named single of the year for 1974 by Rolling Stone magazine. Also um, nominated for a couple Grammys too, but um, ultimately did not win either one of those. Um, best R&B song and best male R&B performance. So missed out on those, but um, great song and um, obviously a huge hit and kind of like kick-started everything as far as disco. So, yep. 
Um, number 19 here, we have um, Barbara Acklin with Raindrops. Uh, this is a skip for me. This song, we had Barbara Acklin last week. And so that's one reason I'm skipping it. Another reason is this song really is sort of a throwback too. This is the one anachronism I had in that it kind of sounds like Barbara Acklin from the sixties a little bit. So, so I'm skipping this one, but. Okay. Okay. Moving on next for you, Matt is number 18. Let's put it all together by the stylistics. Uh, This is a skip. Um, It pretty much sounds like every other stylistic song. So just skipping yeah. it for that. Much as I love R&B music from this era, I've never, ever been able to get in the stylistics. Yeah, me neither. I mean, it's just basically kind of ballads with like the high falsetto. Yeah. Um, nothing really too much there. So, but um, the next one for you is number 17, The Miracles with Do It Baby. Well, this is yet another example. I think we've talked about this before of a group having success after their most famous singer left the band. In this case, Smokey Robinson, of course, worked with the Miracles through uh, the 60s and the early 70s. And But I'm, I'm going to cheat on this one. I'm kind of pissed because my actual favorite example of that phenomenon was actually on the chart a week before. And it was the impressions with Finally Got Myself Together. And it was at number 40 on the R&B chart when I was kind of hunting around for which chart I was going to pick for us to do. And then it completely <laughs> plummeted out of the R&B chart altogether. So I couldn't even do it as like my long distance dedication, which I may have done had it been on the chart still. So um, so I couldn't even long distance dedication the uh, impression song, which is a shame because it's a really cool song. It was produced by Ed Townsend who did Let's Get It On. And it's in that same kind of... Uh, same ballpark and and uh, tempo that that song had so um so this is but do it baby is another example it's okay it's it's kind of low-key actually by the miracles so wasn't their first hit either without Smokey robinson of course they did a, a love machine as well i think about a year or two later so um it's okay but it isn't uh finally got myself together by the impressions i can't believe it dropped 60 spots somehow that that is that is pretty especially on the big drop yeah (laughs) so they just dropped kicked the impressions ass right out of the chart but yeah yeah. like only come back if you bring curtis mayfield with you so (laughs) anyway number 16 for you is an awesome one up for the downstroke by parliament right um some more party funk from p-funk um this is a little bit poppier than standing on the verge of getting on but both songs are pretty similar. Um, the lyrics for this are essentially two different chants. Um, get up for the downstroke. Get everybody get up. And then uh, ooh, ooh. don't don't care about the cold, baby, because when you're hot, you're hot um, towards the end of it. But we kind of alluded to this earlier, but this was the revival of Parliament. Um, um, George Clinton had the band also aside. They were... Funkadelic was on Westbound. Parliament was signed to Casablanca, which was kind of a disco label. And because of that, their stuff was a little bit more poppy. But P-Funk started out as the Parliaments um, back in the 50s, um, kind of as a doo-wop group, and kept the name to the late 60s before they switched to Funkadelic. But aside from um, the bass players and the horn section um 
the bass player on this was Bootsy Collins. Um, exact same personnel as um, standing on the verge of getting it on. But I, when I was doing the research for this, I actually found a commercial for this album, um, which featured this song because this was the title track for it. But um, it featured George Clinton in like full like P-Funk costume um, walking around New York carrying like a boom box getting everybody to dance and follow along with them and uh, he led them into a record store and like it ended with, with like up for the downstroke on Casablanca Records so, if I had a pipe piper I'd want it to be George Clinton that would be cool yeah and I mean it was essentially a video but I mean it's, it was a commercial so, um, I mean, videos are commercials anyway, but I mean, Casablanca just getting to the point, I guess, but great song. Um, like you mentioned, um, um, obviously, I mean, mentioned this before, but everything about P funk's great. So still this the case here. Is, like a lot of good funk songs, this song is very elastic because of the baseline Bootsy Collins famous for that. I have this vision in my head, like an animated, um, maybe there, this even existed. So maybe that's where I get this from, but like somebody in like bell bottoms, like in a funky seventies hat, like with like super long legs, like walking around the globe, like, like in a funky walk to this song. That's the image <laughs> I have in my head, like in, like in striped, um, uh, bell bottoms, uh, and maybe there's like, and it's animated and there's maybe like, like electric company, uh, or Sesame street, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, like stars <laughs> above their head. Like, yeah. Get up for the downstroke. Bow, wow, wow, wow. Everybody get up. Boom, boom. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I kind of, I could imagine what you, what you're envisioning there. Yeah, I, I'm not I, even I, on any drugs that. when I say that. I mean, it's like the it's it's cool funk has that elastic kind of like you just want to go strut around to it. Like I, don't. yeah, and, I'd look stupid and, doing it, but right. And I might, well, the commercial I might say that's basically what people are doing behind George Clinton. I know I would so. do that. I and I go in there and buy the Up for the Downstroke album, which I did buy, uh, like around the same time I got. Standing on the verge of getting on it. That album is not as good as Standing on the Verge of Getting It On. Like that, Up for the Downstroke is a great song, but it tails off after that. Parliament did better stuff later. So, right. Mothership yeah. Connection was not long, long away, which is a great album. That, that was like the same, that was like later this year, right? Or... No, no. That came out like in 70, either late 75 or 76. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I think Chocolate City was between this and Mothership Connection, and uh, they did actually, I think, a couple more yet. So, hmm. uh, Night of the Thumpasaurus Peoples from Mothership Connection is another one of those elastic funk songs. Or you could just head bob to it. Maybe that's a better way to describe it. Like, oom, oom, oom. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah. See, but moving on to 15 for you, we have um, Betty Wright with Secretary. This is from the Danger High Voltage album, which has nearly all of Betty Wright's greatest songs. Uh, Clean Up Woman would be the one that isn't on it. That's probably her 
I guess her most famous song, but it's a good up-tempo solo song about cheating from the perspective of the other woman, which was a popular trope in the 70s. But this album also features Tonight is the Night, which is a pretty famous song that Betty recorded. I think the more famous version was recorded live a few years later, but it describes Betty losing her virginity. And it was one of the first songs. It's it's more of a, it's not like, it's not... Um, you know, like misogynistic or anything like that. It's it's more of a touching story of that. And that's definitely one of her most famous songs. And it also has Shura Shura, which is a great horn-based R&B funk belter. So um, Betty Wright was pretty cool. She died recently too, uh, I think within the last year or so. But uh, good. Uh, and she kind of was like self-made. She kind of uh, fought her way up and um, eventually I think had her own label and stuff like that. So, um, but good, good R and B slash, uh, funk artist from the seventies. So good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Another good one. Number 14 time for living by Sly and the family stone. This was, um, Sly and the family stones last top 40 hit on the hot 100. And it was. Um, that the original lineup did um small talk um sly put out a couple albums as sly and the family stone without them but this was the last with the actual band and it's mellow like pretty bluesy um i guess um kind of typical of their sound from um there's a riot going on onwards and it was actually covered a couple of times in the 90s um the charlatans or charlatans uk covered it and their version was pretty faithful to sly's version but they made it more mad madchester sound yeah and um the better known cover was by the beastie boys um they did it as a hardcore punk track on check your head and i like always noticed like the sly stone like credit on the back of the album cover, but it never really computed computed that it was an actual Sly Stone cover. I, I mean, I just kind of assumed that they like just borrowed the title and it had like nothing to do with like the other song. But I mean, Mike D is basically just like shouting out like what Sly Stone says here. But, um, but this is, I mean, pretty good pretty good song for sly and when i was doing the research i stumbled onto a clip of him playing this on the mike douglas show and um it was pretty pretty good version of the song but the interview that came after it was just like totally loopy because uh sly was like very obviously high during it and he was like claiming that he spent like a hundred thousand dollars a year on clothes. Um, he was talking about meeting more Doris Day and like sh- shot down rumors that they were dating each other. And he just started like playing with Mike Douglas's shoe at some point. So um, I, I think there's like more like unhinged yeah, there, I, interviews I, from this I've time actually, period. I've, I've seen that. Yeah. So I mean, it's kind of goofy and like some of the stuff that he's mentioning once you know like what happened with Sly later on with like some of his financial troubles it's kind of like 
like flash bulbs going off when he's mentioning. Well, it, so. and it was un- I mean, I don't remember this. I've, that's only what I've read, but um, it's unfortunate because by this point, Sly had become pretty notorious for skipping out on concerts and things like that, and he was still a big celebrity. And like his wedding, which occurred not too long before he made Small Talk, uh, his featured with his wife on the cover of the album. Was like a big mm-hmm. deal. I think it was at a concert at Madison Square Garden or something like that. And it was like a big press event. And I mean, but it's an example of somebody becoming notorious for the wrong reasons. And then this is sort of the period where he was beginning squeezed out of the last ounce of his fame by kind of the media machine, I guess. So um, and he wasn't as creatively good as he had been. I mean, I have the small talk album. It's not bad at all but it's nowhere near there's a riot going on or even fresh um, in terms of quality. Although this song is really good. And so is loose booty, which also comes off of this, but what will always remain a mystery to me is, is um, if you've ever listened to Sly from, from the, there's a riot going on period on, I mean, there were a lot of hits off of those three albums, especially the two previous to this one. And I'll never understand why that stuff was accessible at all, because it's totally inaccessible music that's not. Oh, yeah. I, I yeah. love those albums, but they're not pleasant to listen to, especially if there's a riot going on. That is a downcast. It's not like you throw that on at a party. This isn't like dance to the music era sly. This is the opposite. And I'll never I mean, it's kind of cool that he was that popular in the early 70s, putting out music that was really good, but really hard to listen to. And, you know, pretty dark most of the time, really. I mean, it's, um, you know, Family Affair was the big one. But if you know Family Affair, that's a pretty, you know, the the whole vibe of that song. It's very cool, but it's dark, you know, both the lyrics and the music. So and that's the one right. single. So imagine the ones they didn't. Um, but I love that stuff. But I'm, I mean, I'm not going to throw it on like on a date either, <laughs> you know. Right. So, yeah, um, it's more cerebral music as far as I'm concerned and good music to, to clean the house, too, which I've mentioned that before. Yeah. Yeah. You I have. like doing yeah. chores. I mean, I haven't done that in a while, but I used to like doing chores to that album for some reason. No, I can't explain yep. that one. So it'd be good for that. Yeah. Nothing gets me doing chores better than music design, drug influenced music uh, design to speak of the bitterness of African-Americans in the early 70s. It <laughs> right. gets me doing stories, right. I guess. Who knew? <laughs> um, but the, no, we should move on to 13 here, which for you is um, the Hughes Corporation with Rock the Boat. This is an example of a delayed reaction hit because it was originally recorded in 1973, had zero chart success, was going nowhere, but then it became a big hit when the New York City disco started playing it. So it does, because of that, have some credibility as the first disco song, which it's often called. Um, some say Love's Theme by Love Unlimited Orchestra, which went to number one a little earlier in 1974, deserves the distinction. And we're talking like big hits. You know, I'm sure there were disco songs that weren't hits before both of those songs. But um I don't know. As much as I like Love's Theme, I, I think Rock the Boat has a better claim to the first disco song, at least among those two. I mean, 
Love's theme to me doesn't, I mean, it has disco elements to it, I suppose, but I don't, I don't know. I don't consider that necessarily a disco song, but um, anyway, there's one thing I think about when I think about the Hughes Corporation other than, um, so I'd like to know where you got the notion. Everybody knows that part, but Mm -hmm. the, the part that I don't know why I always recall this, but it seems like every press photo I've seen of the Hughes Corporation has, um, one of their band members, St. Clair Lee, is always wearing this weird headband. That's the thing I always think about okay. with Hughes Corporation. Like one of those 70s style, it's almost like a tiara headband. So seriously, go look. Any picture of Hughes Corporation will have him in, in, in that headband. But um, okay, sort of like a, if you know, um, uh, kind of, it's not Slick Watts. See, Slick Watts for the Sonics had like almost like a, like a sweatband on his head, but this is more like a thin band headband. Anyway, um, the one thing that pisses me off though, about rock the boat that has nothing to do with the song at all is lazy yacht rock perform programmers who uh, play it because it has the word boat in the title. Yeah. Oh, dumb. But I mean, this song is obviously very well known and um, you know, it's, I, I guess I like it. It's okay. It's not bad. But yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's all right. Pretty much. <laughs> Number twelve for you. Happiness is just around the bend by the main ingredient. Um, this is a skip. It's not that bad. It's kind of similar to the Temptations, but just needed something to skip here. Fine. <laughs> um. Number 11 for you, um, the Isley Brothers with Live It Up Part 1. Yep, the Isleys were very much in the prime of their fruitful second phase uh, in the 70s um, after they had been, you know, very successful in doo-wop in the late 50s and early 60s, and then they had some Motown hits in the mid-60s, and then they had some kind of real gritty, like, It's Your Thing era hits. Uh, right at the dawn of the 70s on their own label. Um, that was with the original brothers. And then what really kind of kicked in their second phase is when they added the younger brothers. Uh, Ernie and Marvin joined the band uh, a couple albums before this and really gave them a contemporary sound. The older brothers, other than uh, Ronnie, who always sang lead, were sort of almost consigned to the background. They sang background, you know, a la the pips for... Uh, Gladys Knight, but they weren't as prominent as they were in some of their early songs because they gave some of that time to especially Ernie and his guitar. He was particularly influential with his kind of serpentining Jimi Hendrix style guitar, probably best known in uh, uh, That Lady, but also prominent in this song. And uh, Marvin Isley played bass and uh, this is a bass workout song. I mean, it's this you can make an argument that this is one of the first disco songs, too. Um, although it's equally as much a funk song. So, um, and Chris Jasper, who was a cousin, I believe of Ernie and Marvin, uh, also joined the band around this time. And he keeps this song going. This is one case where it's cool that the song does keep going. Cause he just, uh, keeps the groove going with some really hypnotic electric piano and clavinet and synths and stuff like that. So this is a really good funk workout. And I do have to say ZZ top totally ripped off the drums from this song for give me all your love and at least the first couple beats go go compare the two and you'll yeah yeah you're right about that yep. 
Yeah, I, I hadn't noticed that until you mentioned it, but you are right about that. So, really good stuff from the Isley Brothers. I'm a huge Isley Brothers fan, especially of their music from this period. And uh, um, this is one of their better ones. They definitely probably peaked right around this time. I think Fight the Power was on the album after this, which that's a good album. And um, so they they kept having hits well into the 80s. And then... Um, and then the younger Isleys kept going even after that. So um, they've never really. Yeah. Ronnie, it was this... Ronnie had his comeback with what R. Kelly was it? Yeah. And the... he he had like a duet with Rod Stewart in the 90s. Too. Well, they redid uh, This Old Heart of Mine. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. but then he did that thing with R. Kelly where he was like acting all gangsta and stuff like OG and it up. So. Um, yeah, I forget if it was it was in like the trapped in the closet thing, but he was playing like it, it was like a series of songs where he was like playing like a a pimp or something like that in it. Maybe he wrote uh, "Piss on You." <laughs> yeah, could be, could so, be. Anyway, another iconic one next for you, number ten. Can't get enough of your love, babe, by Barry White. And this is, I mean, his signature song, um, probably his best known song by far, but um, it has a similar feel to the rest of his hits. Um, just kind of smooth um, funk with like the disco strings with like the full orchestra and everything. Um, and almost all of his hits did come in like the 73 to 75 time period. And I mean, he... Just, was just like dominating the R&B charts at this time. I mean, every single thing went to dump, went to the top 10 on here, but um, he wrote this, I mean, during he claimed that he wrote it this like while he was like going through a bout of insomnia. He just like couldn't get to sleep, just wrote this song and then like dozed off and then just like discovered the song again in the morning. But um the thing that sticks out for me for this one, I mean, I heard this song before then, but I mean, it was featured in an episode of The Simpsons, um, the Whacking Day episode, where um, there was like um, a thing that happened in Springfield where everybody beat up snakes and they invited Barry White to be the um, MC of it. And he was disgusted by it, but Lisa recruited him to use his bass voice to drive the snakes of Springfield to safety so they didn't get whacked. So, but I mean, it's, it's on rate. I mean, still gets played on the radio a lot. I mean, everybody knows this song and I, I found a clip of him playing this on soul train and he actually brought the entire love unlimited orchestra with him, like the full <laughs> orchestra. So basically, like, took up the entire studio. So uh, the dancers had, like, no room to move at all, which was kind of weird for a Soul Train performance. That's one of the true delights of doing this chart was watching old Soul Train clips. This was actually, like, the only one that I could find of a Soul Train clip. I, I found several for my side. But very few of them are actually live. They're just, you know, they're lip synced. You know, I don't, I don't think they did a whole lot of live recording on soul train but but it's still cool to watch though 
I oh yeah yeah definitely just checking out the different dance moves that everybody had going on back then. Yeah. But but yeah yeah well pretty I'm, iconic song. Yeah, and Barry so. White definitely deserves status as like the bridge to disco. I don't know. I guess this song would qualify as disco, sort of, but I feel like it's more of a bridge to disco. It's like proto disco. Like obviously you could dance. Yeah, but you know. I think I make this point. I don't. I forget which song I make this. Actually, it's my next song, so maybe I should just save it. But um, I have a point to make about about that that the transition period we're in. Okay. Okay. So let's let's go on to it here. Um, number nine, we have Billy Preston with "Nothing from Nothing." Um, this is Preston's co-biggest hit, along with "Will It Go Round in Circles," which we had uh, a few episodes ago. Um, the cover. The cover for the 45 is awesome. It has uh, Billy Preston in peak Afro period just giving you a thumbs up on the cover of the uh, of the 45. <laughs> and then the album the song is from, The Kids and Me, um, not only has a cover that looks like it could have been on either. It, it looks like it looks like it's animated and it looks like it could either be on Good Times or Fat Albert, one or the other. Like it's that style of animation. Um, that album also has You Are So Beautiful, which I, I didn't even know Billy Preston did the original version of that, but he did. And Joe mm-hmm. Cocker covered it shortly after. So I, the, the point I was going to make, though, is that um, the disco from we talk about disco and disco in the early disco period is pretty damn far removed from like Ring My Bell or the cover of um, of. Uh, uh, knock on wood i mean that disco is that's evolved disco that's producer disco disco from this period like barry white disco to me doesn't sound anything like like late 70s disco at all even though you can still dance right. to it so I, that's what makes this this chart so interesting to me is that you know we're still straddling the line between a lot of styles a lot of the disco that i suppose you could call that from this period was still made by bands not studio creations which they basically became later i mean there were bands the bg's disco was from a band and stuff like that but most of the popular disco you know was from producers really and um so i always feel like it's weird to call all of so it's weird to put all that under one tent because i guess like the disco from 74 to 76 to me is almost totally different from the disco from like Saturday night fever to the 1980 or so. Would you agree? Right. Yeah. The early stuff's definitely a lot smoother and everything like after saying uh, Saturday night fevers, like pretty hard edged. I go I'm... the other way around. I think the stuff from their mid seventies is harder edged and the stuff from the late seventies is smoother or more <laughs> or more pop. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but it, it, I don't, I don't agree that those should necessarily be considered the same genre. So I'm not exactly sure what you, I mean, the, the, the thing is though, is that it was all popular in the clubs. So, you know, I'm not sure. Right. Maybe you can't make that distinction. I don't know. But, but by that token, then some of the like electro funk from the eighties should be considered disco, I guess. I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. I guess it doesn't really matter as long as you enjoy the music. It doesn't really matter what you call it. So, that's what Billy Joel told me with it's only rock and roll to me. I learned that from Billy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Anyway, another song that could be considered an early disco song is at number eight, Then Came You by Dionne Warwick and the Spinners. This came out in a brief period where Dion added an E to the end of her last Yeah, name. I noticed that. And she did that on the advice of an astrologer. And she changed it back after she had a dry spell on the charts. And this was the only hit that she had when she had an E at the end of her last name. But it was a pretty big one. Um, went to number one on the pop charts, but... Like, you're, like you said, I mean, it is basically an early disco song. And uh, the Spinners are co-credited on this track. And um, their producer, Tom Bell, produces this. But it is mostly just Warwick with the Spinners kind of as her background vocal, vocalist. But That is um, true. The, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go on. Okay. But Dean was kind of unhappy with the song after it was recorded. So she actually made a bet with Bell um, where they both, where they ripped a dollar bill in half and they each kept a half of the dollar bill. And he told her that if it went to number one, she would have to send him the other half of the bill. And if it didn't, he would send her the half. So um, when this did go to number one, Dion did, send her the other half of the bill back and she wrote an apology on it. So um, that's the story for that one. But um, but great song. And I mean, yeah, obviously very disco. Well, so. and what I was going to say is, is that while I agree with you that Dion almost entirely sings on it, um, I think the spinners jump in once or twice with lead vocals it sounds though like a spinner song. I mean, it the sound it does, like spinners yeah, spinners all the way. Um, spinners were really on a roll at this point. The early seventies, the spinners kind of be they kind of sucked after Rubber Band Man, um, but in this period they were really good. I mean, we're not too far away from um, games people play, which is a really cool song, and um, so they were in their element at this point. But right. all I can think yeah, of with this song is. Dun, 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 dun. Wow. Okay. That part's cool. Yeah. Yeah. But let's see. Number seven for you, we have My Thang by James Brown. Well, this song starts with a gong, which is never a bad thing. But I have to admit, I'm a big James Brown fan from the early 70s, too. And he sets in a stupidly high bar for his songs in this period. And have to say that this song doesn't really clear that bar, honestly. Um, you know, though, if anybody else recorded it the way James recorded this, it would be considered to be pretty great. But he sets a high standard, especially during this period. And it's um, not one that's, you know, all that awesome compared to some of his other stuff. Um much better and from the same hell album and i could have used this as a long distance dedication too below the top 40 is papa don't take no mess which is yeah i noticed that classic one. james yeah. through and through because papa didn't cuss papa didn't raise a whole lot of fuss but when we did wrong I, i'm screwing this up papa beat the hell out of us <laughs> yeah as, i don't know karate but i know karazer but that's pretty good <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. But this is, uh, James did better in the early 70s than this. I mean, even within this chart. So, but yeah. moving on for you, number six, Kalimba Story by Earth, Wind, and Fire. This is a lot harder funk than you'd expect from Earth, Wind, and Fire. It's, um, it's guitar-driven, um, no horns at all. Um, which is kind of unusual from them or from what most people expect from Earth, Wind, and Fire. But um, the song tells the story of uh, Maurice White, who is the leader of Earth, Wind, and Fire, um, finding a kalimba, which is an African instrument. It's also known as an imbira or a thumb piano. And it kind of sounds like a xylophone or like a doorbell. And you can kind of hear white playing it like at the end of the song but the song tells the story of him finding one in a music store and how it like opened up a whole new world to him but it's i mean really funky song really hard-edged and i mean i was pretty impressed with this one actually me too i i i fully expect whenever i put on earth wind and fire to hear like middle of the road funk and r&b but yeah you're right this is a lot more driven than their typical stuff right yeah i mean if if i if somebody had just like played this to me like without like showing me like the label or anything like that i never would have guessed that it was earth wind and fire yeah me neither it's pretty good though yeah it is but number five for you is Curtis Mayfield with Kung Fu. Well, I love me some Curtis Mayfield. I mean, Superfly is probably, I'm a big fan of black exploitation soundtracks. And there's a lot of good ones, even from movies that aren't very good. And Superfly is by far the best out of all of them. That's probably the best soundtrack album ever by in any period. Um, it's just so brilliant through and through and it's a counterweight to the movie i mean the movie glorifies um you know a drug dealer trying to get out of the game curtis decided to go anti and wrote all the songs as like a counterpoint to all the points the movie was making which makes which makes a movie that frankly isn't very good pretty interesting the music actually makes it kind of interesting to watch that kind of weird almost argument between the soundtrack and the actual movie um but after Superfly, Curtis kind of hit a creative rut. And this song is kind of shows why. I mean, he, 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 pra- he just prattles on and on with this. I mean, it's one of those songs like, it's not as long as Papa Was a Rolling Stone, but there's a lot of kind of aimless instrumentalizations in the middle of it and stuff like that. And it's not about Kung Fu. It's about a kid. He uses Kung Fu as a metaphor for a kid who names himself kung fu because it's cool at the time and all that um so there's a little bit more to it than just kind of cashing in on a phenomenon at the time but still it says a lot about curtis's songwriting that he felt the need to even go there you know with i mean it's like he's kind of making fun of cashing in and cashing in at the same time um with a song yeah and i mean it's not bad or anything but it's nowhere near what he was putting out on Superfly or or Curtis's first solo album or anything like that. So um, he never really hit those heights again that he hit with Superfly and, um, you know, but still a great artist and, uh, um, 
you know, he was, I think he did the Claudine soundtrack from, you know, Claudine. He did. Yeah. He, he wrote on and on the Gladys Knight song. Right. So, so yeah, great artist, but he was kind of on his down, down peak at this point. And unfortunately much later, he was paralyzed after a concert accident and all that after, I think that was in 1990, but, uh, yeah, but one of the greats, but just, you know, even the greats didn't always get it done. So, Right. Next up for you, number four is City in the Sky by the Staple Singers. Um, this is about the Cloud City from Empire Strikes Back. Oh, really? I thought it was um, about the Cloud City from Star Trek where they have like a mine below the city with like all the troglodytes and then like all the rich people live up in the clouds. No, no, no. It's about Empire Strikes Back. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> the Staple Singers went to the future. They wanted everyone to know about Lando Calrissian. Cool. But actually it's about heaven, but it's really vague about what's up there other than it's better than the actual city. So maybe it really is like Cloud City or like the Star Trek city. But um, this song, it, it sounds a lot like Stevie Wonder from this time period. The clavinet, the electric piano, it does have some really good hard rock guitar on it. Probably played by Pops. Probably, yes. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if he, like, was still playing guitar on their albums at this point. But, yeah, it's really good guitar on this. And um, um, Mavis has the lead vocal on it. It's, I mean, the Staple Singers did a lot of great stuff around this time period. But this is, I mean, obviously one of the good songs out of there. And a little bit harder edge than some of the stuff that they had coming out too but great song i think for a long time pops had the distinction of being one of the oldest artists to have a number one song on a chart when uh i'll take you there went to number one i Uh I don't know that he actually had the record but he was or, or there was some distinction with him um and uh and that song in terms of his age because he was maybe it's because he was so much older than you know, his daughters and the, you know, the, the rest of the staple singers and all that. So, um, but I always loved it when pops showed up on song, like on uh, respect yourself. He, he doesn't have a great voice, but he has a distinctive voice and it adds, um, you know, to, to that song, I think. So yeah, the staple singers are cool. I have the album that respect yourself is on. And that is, that is a really good album actually. Yeah. Yeah. Be, 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 it's a dumb title. It's called be altitude respect yourself but that is a really good album though yeah yeah from from what i from what i've heard of it, it is yeah so but um moving on to number three for you we have um rufus featuring shaka khan with tell me something good this song was written by stevie wonder which he frequently collaborated with shaka khan and it definitely sounds like it would fit right at home on inner visions or filling this first finale um it was the first hit it was allegedly the first hit with talk box in it um where talk talk box would become pretty big in the mid 70s you know peter frampton and all that aerosmith um but i don't think it is because the osmonds uh hit the top 20 in 1972 with holder tight from the crazy horses album that has talk box in it and Hmm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that song. I was not until I went and listened to it. 
and uh, it's pretty good, actually. Also, like <laughs> Crazy Horses is is pretty good. So yeah, crazy. Yeah, crazy. Also, horses it doesn't good. rock as hard as Crazy Horses, but it sort of rocks. So, mm-hmm. however, the talk box in this was a lot more influential than that one was, and you know, to the small extent that talk box or electronically um, enhanced voices became big in R&B, like in the late seventies and definitely in the eighties with electro funk. I mean, you can basically draw a line right to this song is where it started. So, um, I mean, Roger and Zap probably would not exist without this song. Um, you know, the whole tell me, tell me, tell me, that was their whole sound. I mean, they yeah, danced yeah. it, but, um, it's a great song, great funk jam. Um, check out the live version from the Midnight Special on YouTube, which is very good. Um, so Rufus uh, put out some good stuff in the 70s. I think we had Rufus on an album chart, if I remember right, on one of the other pods. Yeah, it was, it was the 76 albums, and it, that was a great album, yeah. too. I, I forget what that title they, they, was. They, but, they, they did yeah. a good job of straddling the line between funk and disco, too. So... And Shaka Khan was, of course, you know, an excellent lead singer. So um, it's probably their most famous song as Rufus. Shaka had, you know, equally or more famous songs as a solo artist, but um, but good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. And Shaka is very forward in this song as well, which is pretty good. So. Right. Yeah. A little different style coming up at number two. Hang on in there, baby by Johnny Bristol. See, Bristol was a one-hit wonder as a solo artist, but he had a lot of success as a producer and songwriter for Motown. Um, he either wrote or produced um, Ain't, Mo- Ain't No Mountain High Enough, um, 25 Miles, which we mentioned no, wait, earlier. No, it was um, 45 miles or whatever I said earlier. <laughs> I, I think he said 39. 39 miles, yeah. <laughs> and also, Someday We'll Be Together by The Supremes. But this is him as a solo artist, and it sounds an awful lot like Barry White's. Um, kind of a spoken intro, has like the disco strings, the um, piano, and like the little stabs of wah-wah guitar. Um, Bristol's voice isn't quite as deep as Barry White's, but you can kind of tell that he's trying his best to sound like him. But I mean, it's, it is it is kind of copying Barry White's sound, but it's also a pretty good copy of Barry White's sound. I mean, this is a really great song. I mean, what, really? what do you think about I, it? This song, I, I'm not saying it's bad, but it's always left me a little bit cold because it's hard to copy. Barry White did such a great job of making that sound his own with the deep baritone voice. And you, and you said it's not as deep as Barry. I mean, I'm struggling to think of any mainline singers who who had a deeper voice than Barry White did. I mean, you had individuals in, in, uh, in, in multi vocal groups like the temptations and the spinners both had vocalists deeper than Barry White, but they didn't sing lead most of the time. So I'm struggling to think of anybody who had a deeper voice who did his own songs than Barry White did. So that's when you establish that sound and Johnny Bristol's another octave above white. I mean, it's kind of hard to, it just doesn't sound right and so it's okay i mean i think i had this on one of those rhino compilations i had of like early 70s soul 
and mm-hmm. um, it's it's okay. Did Johnny Bristol sing on um, "Someday We'll Be Together"? I know. It- no, no, he no, he didn't. I I forget who. It might have been um, Fuqua. I forget what the Fuqua's first name is, but I think he was the one who did. Oh, okay, because they were kind of like a pro- pro- ah, production team. So I, I will. Say- he was. It wasn't Johnny Bristol. I though. think this song is probably a little bit more. Like it shifts gears a little bit more so than Barry White songs did. Barry White songs usually established one groove and stuck with it, but this song switches tempos a couple times, so that is one difference, I think. Yeah, you are right about that. Yeah, and one one thing that I forgot to mention is that some of the some part of the verses of this remind me a little bit of One Shining Moment. Yes, it does, and that's probably what part of the reason why it left me cold a little bit <laughs> you're right though, yeah. it does sound like that a lot actually that one shining moment probably ripped it off probably yeah definitely yeah i mean well obviously it came out like 15 years after this but yeah yep but we're at number one here yep you know what to do here we go Uh, Roberta Flack with Feel Like Making Love. This is a really cool song because it's kind of in the same ethereal universe as Aretha Franklin's Daydreaming. In fact, it almost sounds like a sequel thematically. It's like Daydreaming is like before the couple involved got married, like when they're dating. And then Feel Like Making Love might be when when they're actually married or, or, or engaged or something like that. Like the relationship is more mature. So it, it obviously wasn't intended as a sequel, but it has that mellow vibe to it, which is uh, really cool. And probably the only difference is, and, and this was true for a lot of Roberta Flack songs, is it's jazzier. She kind of dabbled more in the jazzish type of wing of uh, R&B at this point. Um, this song was huge. It went to number one here, went number one on the Hot 100 two weeks before this, went number one on the adult contemporary chart as well. And for the record, I have never made love to this song, in case you were wondering, and I know you were, um, <laughs> but I would if the chance came up. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, it, it seems like it'd be suitable. Um, Roberta reminds me, in a sense, not necessarily stylistically, but of Bill Withers in the respect that she's almost consciously cerebral like he could be, but still maintains her roots more in singer, songwriter and jazz more so than those roots that Bill Withers had. Um, so her roots are different. She's interesting. I read, she, you know, she wasn't really all that critically acclaimed in the 70s. I know my hmm. crit- go-to critic, Robert Crisco, was pretty harsh on her, I thought, in the 70s. Uh, because huh, that's, that's kind of surprising. Yeah, he was, but he always kind of ripped on artists that were sort of, I guess you could call Roberta Flack domestic R&B. You know what I mean? I mean... Yeah, yeah, and he never had much time for artists like that. But I think this song is cool. I, I, I mean, she had other great songs. Um, uh, you know, obviously, uh, the first time ever I saw your face is a good ballad, and um, um, you know, she had "Where Is the Love." She worked with uh, Donny Hathaway a lot, who's kind of like the male version of Roberta Flack. I mean, he also dabbled in a lot of adult contemporary, but he also did. He didn't. He, he did. 
stuff too, which is actually pretty good. Um, so Roberta was huge in the seventies and, um, you know, she worked with P. Will Bryson in the eighties, but she really didn't have many hits after the seventies, but it's almost like, I always felt like she was up on this weird R and B pedestal, um, of her own in a sense, like really highly respected by general people like fans and stuff like that. So, um, I do remember her in the seventies and I remember, that's what I remember. I remember her being like, well, Roberta Flack's way up there, like in terms of quality. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I don't know if those memories are accurate, but that's what I do remember. So, but this, I think is, I actually think this is her best song. So just mm-hmm. a good, it's just a good mood song. I think it's kind of cool. It It is a cool song, but um, from the song title, for whatever reason, I always like the bad company song pops into my head. I actually first. Looked, at, I, like, I looked it up. The I thought maybe that was on the chart at the same time, but that album didn't come out until a year after this. So, and when I did searches for this song, the bad company song inevitably came up first, which is kind of surprising because it was nowhere near the hit that this song was. So, you know, whatever, but um, this song is much better than the Bad Company song, which shares the same name. I'll just put it that way. Definitely, definitely, yeah. So, that is it. Yep. I enjoyed our tour through the world of mid-70s R&B. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. I thought so. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> Awkward pause. <laughs> Um, yes. What do you have uh, in mind next week? Um, let's see. Well, we're going to the 2000s no, again. Okay. And you, this, my first pick for the 2000s. Um, we're going to, um, August 30th, 19 or August 30th, 2008. Okay. Um, the hot 100. All right. So, um, let a Will Wayne on here, some Flo Rida, hey, you know some what? Taylor Swift. If you take Flo Rida <laughs> and combine his two names, it says Florida. Yeah, exactly. Didn't know that. Yeah. And he's from Florida, too. Yes, yes. <laughs> but we'll get to delve into that some more next week. So. Wow. Okay. Is this like revenge for me putting you through the 2013 chart? No, no, no. I, I, I just I actually got an, I, I actually chart, got an idea so. for a chart in the course of doing this podcast, and I might pick it for my next one. Uh, okay, okay. Um, get ready for that. But well, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> okay. uh, we will be delving into the aughts next week. Yes, yes. All right. All right. See everyone. Say bye, Matt. Bye. No, say bye, Matt. Okay. <laughs> Are you coming in or are you going to piss about all day? You're bloody finished. You know that, Jack. I'm bloody finished, you. <laughs>